Today, I welcome Dr. Julian Summers, a clinical psychologist whose work focuses on addressing harm reduction and recovery from addiction. Julian is a distinguished professor from SFU and the director of the Center of Applied Research in Mental Health and Addiction. In 1987, Dr. Summers began his work supporting people with severe forms of addiction and mental illness at Coquitlam's Riverview Hospital. Prior to his current roles, Julian was director of the psychology clinic at UBC and once acted as the president of the BC Psychological Association. He has led large studies investigating ways to improve clinical practices and policies related to addiction and mental health. Today, we will be discussing the reality of addiction and homelessness in Vancouver and in comparison to other cities around the world. Then we'll dig into government policies that have and have not worked. Julian, thanks for coming on to Coastal Front today. It's great to be with you, Andrew. Yeah. Just to preface this for our listeners, we're going to talk about, we're going to cover four topics of, of crime, homelessness, addiction, and mental health. And one of the things that you've really uh, liked to point out to listeners and people who are, are, are coining on your, on your conversations is they're all tied together. Yeah, yeah. For, for a number of years um, working in this space in BC, so um, I really started working with governments around the late 1990s, including the BC government, other, other provincial governments, and since then I've, I've, I've worked outside of Canada. Uh, but um, over the years in BC in particular, we've had uh, policy sort of thrusts, reactions that focus on one of those things. So we've got, uh, you know, tent cities. What are we going to do about that? We've got random acts of violence or occasionally violent acts that uh, appear to implicate people with mental illness. What are we going to do about that? And we have addiction. Now, of course, we have a, a poisoning crisis. Um, and it, it, it's been the tendency of, of most governments, actually including the current one, to try to treat um, these problems as though you could attack one of those strands on its own. And like in isolation, in Like sense. in isolation, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So we have you know, task forces mm -hmm. or we have, uh, uh, in, the, in the current instance, we've got to focus on trying somehow to make a difference by focusing on the supply of drugs, manipulate that. But places that have been successful have recognized what I think a great many British Columbians recognize, which is that they're not separate and, and, they're, and they're all connected. And people like me and others who work in this space have been saying that for a long time. But we're finally, I think, at a point where um, we can't deprioritize this set of issues in favor of other things that are urgent. There are always too many things mm -hmm. for us to address, right? So I, I, I'm not saying this saying, you know, finally, finally, you know, where, where's everybody been? I understand that there's competition for addressing public, pri public priorities, but this one won't be solved until we all recognize, and especially our leaders recognize, the interconnections. When we look at British Columbia and we talk about these four topics, crime, addiction, mental health, and, and homelessness, there's nothing that epitomizes that environment more than the downtown east side. Now, most of our listeners are from Metro Vancouver, and I'm sure many of them have at some point driven through the downtown east side. Um, I, I, I happened to drive through there recently and was amazed at how much it changed even the last time from the last time I drove down there, which was maybe about a year and a half ago. Uh, the amount of tents and just like open uh, demise of these, of, maybe that's not the right word, but... Uh, just suffering. I think that's mm -hmm. a great word, a suffering of these people down downtown east side. For those people who haven't been down there or haven't been down there recently, Julian, can you kind of paint a picture for the listeners 
as to what the downtown east side looks like today? I'll try. Um, let me let me start by by saying that um, the the people that are living in in that um, state of suffering that you described. I, I agree. That's a good a good a good uh, summary. Um, almost all of them moved into the metro area from somewhere else. Hmm. So um, in some of our work, we, we uh, uh, made contact with the 500 people that by service providers, this is police, outreach workers, first, first responders, deemed to be the, air quotes, hardest to house, the people who were least likely to get assistance from current services and the people who needed help the most. So we found our way over about a year to 500 people that met those criteria and we asked them for their consent to access um, records from the province. So records, uh, um, British Columbians have to register each year for our medical care cards. We, apart, apart, um, as part of that, we have to say where we're living. So um, we asked our, our clients for information about a, a wide range of health-related service involvements, justice involvements, um, when they needed uh, shelter support or other um, uh, emergency financial assistance. And we got those records going back about 15 years. So in some of our publications, we show that 10 years back, 85% of them were not in Metro. And they slowly wow. move in. And the reason I start here is that um, when we begin sort of characterizing how people are living and, and answering your question a bit more directly, what's really what's going on in their lives, we need to consider that, that meaningful solutions are not going to be implemented in Vancouver. Okay. Meaningful solutions are going to be ones that help prevent this migration process that people experience. They're already beginning to move. They're sorry. They're already homeless when they're beginning to move from wherever they were. Wherever they oh, were. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. And uh, and we see. That so it's not like they show up in the downtown east side in good shape and then it just goes down from there. They've no. already they've already been on a path of of misery and and homelessness or whatever you know mental health. Yeah. Without treatment as they make their way into the downtown east side. That's right. So okay. it's, you can think about sort of the proverbial vicious cycle. And in this case, uh, the vicious cycle of people that we've worked with, and in, in now in many uh, uh, studies and, and projects over the years, involves um, life on the streets or life in, in grossly substandard housing, housing that is visibly unsafe, unsafe socially and unsafe physically. Um, and uh, involvement in crime. Um, among people, uh, one of our studies looked at 14,500 pe 14 people all diagnosed with opiate use disorder, so opiate addiction. And they had on average five convictions per person, so 70,000 for the group. And of that number, 3.8% uh, of their convictions involved the offense of possession. When that, when that particular offense showed up, it was almost bundled with a more serious offense, and more than 50% involve theft. Now, I'm going to theft because they need to steal things to survive. So there are people living in, uh, in squalor, unemployed, with serious addictions, and mental illnesses that are almost entirely untreated. Right. So this is the group that winds up in so the downtown So naturally, they're going to be driven towards... Uh, criminal activity like th like theft. It's I mean. it's either steal something to eat it or steal something to sell it so you can buy drugs or right. 
uh, uh, wither away and die right now. Uh -huh. And uh, about 10% of their offenses, so still a vastly greater number than, than those that involve possession, um, are violent offenses because of the conditions they're living in, the people they're living around, and the chaos of, of their own psychological uh, experiences. Right. So they're, they're starting off in other parts of BC, a few outside the province, but mostly around BC, where there are no resources and very little capacity to support people, and a lot of places that are also colder than here on the coast. Mm -hmm. um, so they move and uh, they wind up not initiating this vicious cycle, but it accelerates. Mm -hmm. So we've published mm -hmm. what happens year over year from the time people begin um, encountering hospitals, jail, the streets, wherever they're starting off, and then what happens over time as they find their way into neighborhoods like the downtown east side. And all those metrics go up year over year over year. It's just a steady, relentless increase in ev evidence of hardships, evidence of crises associated with suffering. Um, the cost of this, we've, so there's so much research that's been done by now. Um, there have been several costing analyses. It's about $55,000 per person per year for British Columbians to support people living in this type of squalor and despair. Um, we've done randomized so controlled it, trials. It's a huge cost. Massive. I mean, it's it is it is it is it is uh, it is literally and demonstrably true that we could start helping by choosing the people who currently cost, say, above one hundred thousand dollars a year, and provide them with housing and support, knowing from randomized trials that it's going to markedly improve their lives, but it's also going to cost taxpayers a lot less. And we are not doing that. In fact. We're not even willing to have a conversation about that in BC. That's where we are. Wow. Well, we're going to get into that. Just to help understand whether Vancouver is unique or it's one of many other cities, um, in, your, in your travels and your research, if I was to go to Calgary, Toronto, Montreal, or some of the major cities in other parts of the United States, would I see the same thing? That I, is, there, is there a downtown east side equivalent in some of these other cities? It's or is it particularly worse here in Vancouver? If we look at BC, it's not only particularly bad um, in the downtown east side historically, central Surrey and other places, but, it's, but, it's, but the, the same sort of pattern of uh, a street entrenched community living in despair, marked by odd behavior that looks like mental illness, as well as uh, uh, visible drug use, that's becoming increasingly prevalent in many BC communities. Nanaimo was in, has been in the news the last few days. Um, the, the, it happens to be the, the riding of our Minister for Mental Health and Addiction. Um, but, the, but the complaints from citizens are very much along the lines of the, the concerns of people in the downtown east side looking at safety, not only their own safety, the, 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 the quality of the neighborhood, but the safety of the individuals. Like, mm -hmm. like surely we, we can be doing better for people, right? Yeah. And that's where, that's where they are. So it's spreading in BC. It's generally, uh, if we go east to west in North America, a West Coast phenomenon. The West Coast cities, um, so we, you know, we hear, hear about, about San Francisco, San Francisco, Portland, Portland, San Diego, yeah. L.A., um, is this climate driven? Is that what it is? I mean, just a more temperate climate? Is it? Is it part? Is that political? I mean, we're kind of on the hippie left coast here, right? A lot more left leaning, progressive, so called progressive, than in the conservative center of the 
is it, what are we talking about here? Well, I, 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 I think there's merit to both of those things. So, so weather and climate, um, uh, a very left-leaning population. But I think also, um, and and it's hard to quantify how much of these things are contributing to yeah. to the to the difference. There are clear differences, though, if we look east coast, west coast, very mm -hmm. clear differences. But another one that is also potentially relevant, east coast, west coast, is that um, here in BC, even unlike other places the, across the prairies and in eastern Canada, many of us have very shallow cultural roots. We come from maybe one, two generations back. We are a very eclectic group, and we have very few shared traditions. Um, we don't even root for the same hockey team necessarily, right? right? Yeah. Or if we root for a hockey team at all. <laughs> or, or that, exactly, yeah. right? So, so, so now, of course, all these comments are accepting um, uh, indigenous people who, yeah. who, whose, whose culture is, is rooted in time immemorial. Yeah. But... Um, but for all the rest of us, we have we have very little culturally that binds us together. And culture winds up being, and cultural practices wind up being huge protective factors in relation to addiction and even homelessness. Uh, cultures of caring, cultures of looking out for one another, and and something else that goes with that is is membership in groups. Okay. Um, so if you go to uh, the East I guess, Coast... I guess what you're implying is this sort of sense of community. That's right. I mean, if you look at a, 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 a culture like Japan, it's probably very different because there's not a lot of immigration into Japan and uh, they're a very homogeneous kind of society. Is that a fair comment? Absolutely. Japan is, is miraculous in having essentially no homelessness. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you go to Tokyo; it's amazing. It, so, yeah. so there is this. Now, there are other downsides to that, other pressures on citizens. But I yeah. think what you're referring to is a different kind of social contract. There's a there. There yeah. are expectations in society um, related to the performance of of individuals. There are we we as individuals have responsibilities, but society has responsibility to us as well. If we observe those responsibilities, we ought not ever to be in a predicament of abject poverty and homelessness. We, there should be a place for us. Mm -hmm. And many countries around the world do that better, uh, a lot better than we do. Well, this is good. This is helps to paint a picture for um, you know, how bad it is and maybe some of the reasons why it's, it's developed the way it has. Um, my understanding is that in Portugal, they had a national drug policy that they implemented in 1999. I think you've spoken about this before. Um, and they stated that there was no s such thing as treatment without social reintegration. Can you take a moment to talk about, first of all, ex explain to the listeners what happened in Portugal in 1999? Because, um, you know, while it's maybe a, and to a certain extent a bit of a homogeneous, I mean, I've been to Portugal, it's like a bit of a homogeneous, uh, you know, society. It is a center point for a lot of migration and immigration between Africa and other parts of Europe. So maybe you can talk for a minute about what happened in 1999 and the success they had in a the turnaround they had there. Yeah, thanks. It's a, it is a remarkable story, and uh, it has some, I think, some uh, lessons for us in BC and 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 actually Canada um, that 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 we can be inspired by and maybe emulate. But we'll, we're going to have to do it in our own way. They they had in the in the mid 90s already uh, the worst poisoning epidemic in Europe. Uh, the 
visible drug scene uh, along the lines of what we were discussing a few minutes ago in almost every Portuguese town and city. And uh, uh, just this uh, incredible um, epidemic of drug use and deaths. So they, they, before they launched their or wrote their nas national strategy, um, they had an, a, a fairly intensive period of consensus building. This was consensus building around um, what Portuguese people were opposed to. Um, but more important than that, it was what are Portuguese people for? What are we for? And as uh, the quote that you that you read a moment ago is is I think a powerful illustration of that. We are for people being integrated in communities. Right. So how do you do that? Well, one of the elements of their of their approach, which already differs sharply from what we we're doing in Canada, um, their their national strategy is a national strategy for the fight against drugs. It sounds like war on drugs. Yeah. And they mean it. They're saying, number one, this is a prevention strategy. We're, we're doing this because of a crisis, but our vision is prevention. We don't want our youth to be using drugs. We don't want, and this includes cannabis, by the way. Right. Um, we don't want our, our, our youth you know, to, be, to be prone to, to developing problems. We, we need to support our youth in their development. But for people who currently have problems, we have a crisis. So how do we apply that ethos <laughs> of providing supports for people? And I'm, I'm back to a social contract because this is, this, is, this is coming from the, the, the Portuguese society writ large, including its institutions. What, do we, what, what vision do we have for people? And um, how are we going to address this crisis and get closer to our vision? No. So they, um, notably, they decriminalize the possession of, of drugs. In Portugal, as, as in Canada and many cities here, possession of drugs was not a widely prosecuted offense prior to the national strategy. It is incorrect that decriminalization is a centerpiece of the Portuguese strategy in terms of contributing to changes. In fact, by making possession an administrative offense, it gave police greater opportunity to become involved in the lives of, in the, in the physical space and in the lives of people that they saw using drugs in the open air. And they used this administrative sanction to take people to what are known as dissuasion commissions. The dissuasion commission is a interface between the police um, and uh, an array of resources that they are not directly attached to. So we, it's, it's got, it has a degree of independence that affords um, the, the freedom to make, make referral decisions without self-interest. We're not referring people to our program. And um, so for people who have been uh, the, the hardest challenge, the greatest challenge, I should say, not the hardest, the greatest challenge, is for people who um, not only have drug problems, are homeless, are unemployed, um, but who have no social network. They don't have a, a, a family or other source of social supports to aid them. They're truly on their own. They're truly on their own. Um, they also, and now I'll, I'll refer to things that we've learned about folks in BC, they also uh, tend to have had uh, what we call adverse childhood experiences, just really very arduous and uh, often painful experiences of development throughout their whole lives. Nobody's right. told them on a consistent basis that you're lovable, yeah. uh, you're worth things, you can do things. Given choices about things that matter, 
very little of that. So, um, so what do you do with people who have that kind of uh, syndrome that they're experiencing? And one major answer is known as therapeutic communities. So these are places where people uh, can be referred to and can go for uh, up to a couple of years or longer. Typically, and by the way, we're, we're talking about people who are generally young people. So in our, in our work, the average age is in the mid-30s, but we see people from you know, teen years up. And so people who have decades ahead of them, people who overwhelmingly, if you ask them day one, so they're, they're, there they are, you're talking to them on the sidewalk, asking about priorities, and 85% say they want to resume paid work. Wow. Right? Seems like a long journey from yeah. that point. Yeah, sure. But they'll tell you that. Oh, that's your goal. And so therapeutic communities incorporate um, vocational training. And uh, Portugal had 64, I don't know if they still have that number, um, but 64 of them where people could be referred and they would, they would some would be uh, oriented toward men, women, some mixed. They'd focus on different aspects of vocational training. They'd each have different cultures and people uh, ought to be able to choose when you have that sort of an array. They ought to be able to make a choice. Um, they were so this is a huge part of what contributed to their success the fact that they did that meant that they did not need a single consumption site drug consumption site in all of portugal now this is not a diss on consumption sites consumption sites are one way of reducing harm but they're not simply a way of reducing drug consumption related harm they're more specific than that they're ways of reducing harm when you have a population of drug users that's homeless. That's when you really need consumption sites. Right. If you are committed to addressing the harm of homelessness independently by providing therapeutic communities or other community-based living for people, <laughs> then you don't need consumption sites, not because it's a, they're a bad idea, yeah. but because you're addressing the harm of homelessness in a different way. And that was their decision. Can you talk to the numbers of like how did things change so that we can put some real context to this? Well, they they went from having the the highest rate of poisonings in Europe to the lowest over about six years, and along and today, the way, I mean that was 1999, so that takes you to 2005. Do you know what the status is in Portugal today? My my Portuguese friends, if they listen to this, they won't like this, but they're they need to do a better job of record keeping. Um, <laughs> they're they they really have not uh, done the the greatest job. They've um. Uh, and honestly, the people driving this have not, they were, they were not concerned about showing things to the world. They were concerned about showing things to people living in Portugal mm, and, and for their own society. So um, many, of these, many of these stats are, are um, I've been told, and this is by um, colleagues working in Portugal, that after the financial crisis, the, um, the, the things started to become strained for them as well as for many uh, um, providing public services. And they saw an increase in uh, street drug use. In 2018, I believe it is, they implemented their first mobile consumption site, um, which was uh, a recognition that this, the, the resources that they had previously were no longer sufficient hmm. to meet demand. But I've, I've, the most recent stats I've seen, their, their rates of poisoning are still among the lowest in Europe. Something that has been reported more that's relevant is drug seizures 
are very high in Portugal, related to being a um, you know a coastal country and a gateway. So what's to a Europe. drug seizure? Oh, seizures of drugs like oh. cocaine, fentanyl. Oh, oh I see. I'm sorry. Yeah. I thought you meant like a seizure in your brain. Oh, I beg your oh, pardon. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. No, oh, no. So, 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 so the focus, you know, the focus on trafficking. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They're they're they remain very aggressive on that front. Um, I mean, to me, that's what would tie a big a big uh, tie between. Portugal and British Columbia is a, it'd be like the, you know, multiple ports in which you can, you know, uh, traffic drugs. I'm sure they have the same, same problem that we, we've, we're, we're experiencing here in BC. If it, if it was that simple, then, um, you know, why but not why, Japan? Yeah. Right. Yeah, why cool. not? Why not England? Yeah. Why not? You know, so it's, um, it, this is something we've been, I think it's been overemphasized to us by our leaders that, um, um, that, that, the problem has been summed up for us as a uh, toxic drug crisis. That's what we've been told. Yeah. And, you know, people like me, um, so I mean, like, you know, academic types and, and, and um, we, we focus on these words because this is, you know, government's telling us what the cause is. And once we hear what the cause is, and it makes sense to do something that's somehow related to the cause. So if, but but this statement of cause that it's that that the cause is toxic drugs, is simply wrong. It is it is it is wrong, and it is useless. It does not afford us any opportunity at all to make progress. If we've learned one thing from the what is it now, sixty years of the war on drugs? No, fifty years. Fifty years of the war on drugs. It is that we cannot substantially reduce problems of addiction by trying to intervene in the supply of drugs. All the current government is doing is rebranding the war on drugs. They're saying, no, we're not going to we're not going to focus on the supply by trying to intervene with the narcos. We're going to try and we're going to try and make a difference by displacing them. We're going to become the dealers. Right. Right. Pharmaceutical supply. But it's still the same old, same old. It's, it's a supply-focused uh, analysis, um, and it's not That's even correct point. because the, the supply is, is – people who are dying, uh, and Alberta coroner's report recently reiterated this, over 90% have multiple illicit drugs in their systems. So if someone's dead and you find that they um, started out drinking – then they consumed some fentanyl. Then they consumed some cocaine. The bump of cocaine caused them to take more fentanyl. Now they're dead. Which drug killed them? Right. Which Which one is it? Yeah. How it was, do we How do we get to? It's a fentanyl crisis. Yeah. It's a so supply is useless. We need to focus on demand. What are the conditions in our communities that are causing people to demand drugs in that way? And that goes a long way down the track to helping us because even in these coastal uh, countries where there are prevalent um, uh, addictions and, 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 and consequences like poisonings, there are still lots and lots and lots of people who live in those communities who are not at all interested in participating and using drugs addictively or putting their life in, in jeopardy. Yeah. What's different about them? Yeah. Typically, they have lives that to them are inherently more meaningful than using drugs. So Julian, if I can just summarize this in layman's terms, it sounds like what you're proposing is policymakers, leaders in our in our in our government need to move away from a focus on the supply aspect of these illicit drugs to why is there demand in the first place? Is that as simple as that? Yeah. 
So you don't, you don't actually, so this idea, cause I have always had the view uh, that the reason we lost the war on drugs is because we stopped fighting it years ago. Like we just kind of opened up the borders. We've, we've literally legalized cannabis. You know, I don't know if it was a fallacy or not, but when I was growing up as a kid in the 1970s and 80s, I was constantly told that don't do any drugs because like things like, you know, marijuana is a soft drug and it's a gateway to hard drugs. Um, I mean, what's your opinion on that, by the way? The, the gateway um, hypothesis has not been well borne out. Okay. So you don't believe in that. And um, so it sounds to me like what you're suggesting is like whether we have cannabis legal or illegal, it's not, that's not the issue. The issue here is what's causing people to want to, to, to take in these toxic, I mean, cannabis is not a toxic uh, drug I and mean, people aren't dying. Although I think, I still think there's some, some issues around cannabis. Cause I like, I have some people I know really close in my life that are like, seem to be addicted to it. I mean, we could probably go on a tangent on yeah. that, but no, no, that, that's absolutely. That yeah. is, that is verifiably the case. Yeah. But there's also people addicted to alcohol. It's like a major, more. major industry. Yeah. Way more. Okay. Well, let, let me, let me uh, just pivot for a moment. Cause I want to talk about some, I'm, I'm, I'm big guy on numbers and stats and these, these tables we have in front of us here are quite fascinating. So these are from the BC Coroner's Service. And one of them that shows us is the um, percent of illicit drug deaths by fentanyl. And um, in 2000, just to give some context, in 2012, fentanyl deaths accounted for 4% of, of, of all the deaths by illicit drugs, 4%. And in 20, and then and it went from 14, uh, 4% to 15 to 25, 29. And then there's a huge jump in 2016. It went from 29% in 2015 to, to 67% in 2016. And then it bumped from there to the 80s, the low to mid 80s. And it's kind of been hovering there ever since. What caused this massive spike in making fentanyl the primary in, uh, reason for the, like the, the shift in these uh, illicit deaths from something else to fentanyl? L let me start by gently pushing back on primary uh, reason. Okay. In, in, in part be because the, the point I want to, I just wanted to remind people of is that um, these are poly drug poisonings. People in, almost invariably have multiple drugs in their system. It's almost, it's impossible to tease apart which one is contributing uh, to like your example cause earlier, of death. Someone has some alcohol, then yeah. they have some fentanyl, then they take some cocaine, then they go back to fentanyl. Exactly. What, what killed them. Exactly. Okay. So there are also market fluctuations and um, and within that profile of, of, of drugs that are used and that, that are detected on autopsy, there are known to be um, big changes over time. Um, benzodiazepines, uh, in even in the last six years, benzodiazepines have gone from being relatively like single digits in terms of prevalence to over 50% um, among decedents. So there, these changes are not not uncommon. The, the change relating to fentanyl is principally related to volume and the fact that you can uh, conceal fentanyl and, and carfentanyl, an even more potent uh, synthetic opioid, are uh, infinitesimally smaller. Uh, in terms of uh, um, an individual dose than the required amount of heroin. Oh, so from a, from a trafficking perspective... Uh, so this is um, an economics thing. It's almost. economics and risk. Right. Yep. And it, it has some relevance to where we are, um, you know, as of two weeks ago, um, decriminalizing drugs in BC where possession of up to two and a half grams is permitted. That, that gram limit... 
um, is uh, it's 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 hard to understand when we consider for a second that two and a half grams of fentanyl or two and a half grams of carfentanyl would take out all the occupants of a building this size, you know, high rise office tower, hundreds downtown, of working here. hundreds of people. So, so these, the, the gram limits in this, in this context, uh, you must make have been shaking little... your head when you heard this policy come out. It's this two and a half grams. I mean, if I'm a drug dealer and I'm walking around with two grams of fentanyl, I must be like just laughing right now. Cause I don't have to worry about any cops shaking me down for Versus are, and just and you know imagine imagine the the difficult spot that the police and other first responders are put in, but but sure. but, but police in, you know in, in particular, um, because now they've got this essentially in their face. Yeah, their their um, two and a half grams of, of fentanyl is a, 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 a you know a fairly plentiful supply. Yeah. if you're a dealer. Yeah, so now police are having to um, essentially watch as. Uh, a, 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 an extremely dangerous um, uh, source of drugs in the communities that they're that they're serving is now uh, legal for for possession and legal for trafficking. Okay, so Julian, whether it's fentanyl or it's car fentanyl or this latest one you mentioned, what was it that you said went from single digits to double digits? To That's good old benzodiazepines. Ben- benzodiazepine. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to just sp- speak to total number of of deaths by illicit drugs, regardless of what actually caused it. And it sounds like what you're suggesting is it's probably a multitude of, of drugs in these, in these poor people's lives that, uh, take, take them for, for their lives. Um, this is the, again, this is the BC coroner service. And I look at the graph, it's amazing. Like I look at 2011 to 2021 or 22, and it's, it's just unbelievable. I mean, like at the end of 2012, for the listeners to get a context, the total number of deaths by illicit drugs in British Columbia was 270. And we're not talking about 1912. We're talking about 2012. Ten years ago, 270 people died of illicit drugs. In the month of January of 2022, 213 people died. Almost the same number in one, in one month that happened in an entire year 10 years ago. We've gone from 270, 334, 369, 529, then again 2016, spikes to 1,000, 1,500, 1,500, 1,000, 1,700. In the last two years, it's bordering around 2,300 people. I, I don't even know what the, that, that is on a per day basis, but it's got to be, what is the math on that thing? Someone got a calculator? What's 2,300 divided by 365? Yeah. 6.3. 6.3 people dying every single day. I mean, this is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we, you know, this, this, I'm going to go divert for a second. You know, during COVID, we had such a focus on like masks and vaccines and keeping people safe. And these deaths are far higher than any uh, COVID deaths occurred. And it makes me think. It kind of sad because we we don't really treat all lives equally, you know. Like if we had the same amount of effort and and energy by our political leaders to tackle this problem as we did on COVID, I mean, even a tenth of what we spent on COVID in money and time and effort, I think we'd have be these numbers would be way down. But these are these are just numbers that keep seeming to. I mean, maybe we've plateaued here, but at two thousand three hundred a year, that's a lot of people dying in British Columbia. Yeah, you're 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 right that 
are leaders, and I, I don't think this is the way most people in BC um, feel, but uh, our leaders are treating these lives as being of lesser value, and and even well, with clearly. A, with a degree of contempt. I mean, you just look at the stats. I mean, if I was prime minister, premier, mayor, and I looked at these numbers, I'd be like, clearly, whatever we were doing or have been doing isn't working. Yeah, yeah. The by the way, it's the it's the premier of those different levels of government that has the most opportunity to make a difference here, or makes the biggest difference. Um, uh, because of the way our resources are are allocated governmentally and and where the budgets are, um, you know, in terms of cause, so we we pivoted from the idea that that the the ultimate cause is some is has something to do with the external supply of drugs and that it may may be something closer to home. Mm-hmm. Um, to to toward that. Um, when people have uh, survived poisonings and, and been asked uh, about their state of mind at the time, um, published research on this finds that about half were suicidal at the time of their non-fatal poisoning, the first one, and that the likelihood of experiencing suicidal thoughts at, along with the poisoning, non-fatal poisoning goes up the more that you've survived. Um, wow. BC also has the largest increase in suicide over this period of time. So your earlier comment about suffering, um, some, some economists looking at this phenomenon in North America, looking at where their concentrations of deaths due to drugs and deaths due to suicide, have coined the term deaths of despair. And um, they, 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 they chose that term um, because where they're seeing evidence of concentrations of these forms of, of, of death, um, there's also evidence of loss of hope, loss of opportunity. And uh, so that's a, an important part of what we need to consider as a cause here mm-hmm. is a lot of these things are, are um, they, they amplify pre-existing factors in BC, but those trends that you referred to start in the aftermath of the last uh, global economic downturn. Sure. Where we just sort of see an amplification of things. Since that time, I mean, remember before COVID, headline news was, if I'm not mistaken, r- indigenous people across the country blocking railways in solidarity with British Columbia First Nations people, Mm -hmm. because we're the last place on the planet not to have formally resolved relations between colonized and colonizing peoples. That was pre-COVID. That didn't get better during COVID. It only got worse. We have also uh, continuing wealth inequality and more and more despair among young people, people who move here. So um, where else do we see this? During the same period of time that deaths are going up, we have a more than doubling of the numbers of British Columbians that are involuntarily admitted to hospital. We have a rise in the use of prisons from about 45% for people, 45% of the people detained having addictions and other forms of mental illness to about 75%. So when, when, uh, uh, Premier Eby and others stand up and, and sort of equivocate on, are we in favor of, you know, involuntarily helping people under some circumstances? 
the horse is out of the barn. You're already involuntarily intervening by hospitalizing people against their will, by putting people in jail. They happen to be involuntary interventions that don't result in any long-term benefit. Right. But we're way past the point of are we involuntarily intervening? Um, we so we, I'm, I'm back to what we need to focus on, which yeah. is this 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 state of despair. And um, we can modify these the, the the conditions that people are living in ways that make a difference. Other places have shown it. Alberta, right next door, is undergoing a sea change, inspired by what Portugal did, but doing it in a way that makes sense in Alberta. And thankfully, they're th they're three years in. Uh, a lot of that was planning and organizing. Now that they have resources in place, their numbers over the last six months of, of poisonings, of first responder incidents, <laughs> and of deaths have started to go down. Oh. We're, not, we're not seeing anything like that in BC. Yeah. No, we aren't. No, definitely not. Okay. Well, this is, I want to go back to your comment a moment ago about institutionalizing people. You worked at Coquitlam's Riverview Hospital, and I think maybe you may change my mind here, but I've always kind of thought, well... Maybe one of the problems we have is that we aren't taking these people and putting them into sort of safe, institutionalized environments where they can get better and then hopefully at some point integrate it back into society. Or for some of those who are really at the at the sort of edges, just keeping them in a place in perpetuity. Uh, at least they're not on the street and uh, they're, they're costing us $55,000 a year anyways. Are you are you in favor of opening up River Review style hospitals, but in a more modern, compassionate way that you wouldn't have had? Like, I'm not talking about one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of like 1970s style, but you know it's 2023. Open up some you know locations and in, in not urban centers where the drug dealers can show up at their doorstep and get these people clean. Is that something you would be in favor of? No. Okay. Um, so, um, so, but here's why. Yeah. Explain when, why. When we were, when we, you know, I was, I, I, w I was introduced to this, this field, um, um, by, by several people working at, at Riverview, um, uh, just sort of onboarding me. And I, and, and, and one thing that I, I learned and I've, I've now had a chance to, to, to investigate myself, uh, over the years is, is that, um, we, we deinstitutionalized places all around the world agreed to do this. Um, we were, it's not unique to BC, but we all agreed that deinstitutionalization was the future because there was already compelling evidence that people had a greater chance of a higher quality of life and also of long-term recovery from severe mental illness when they were supported in community settings that kept intact as much as possible of their family, their uh, community involvements, their vocational activities. Right. So, of course, there are supports that are needed for people, depending upon their, the severity of their symptoms, the duration of their symptoms. But the bigger picture was, and our slogan, by the way, those, those that will remember this, was closer to home. The okay. government slogan coincident with closing Riverview was providing care closer to home. It okay. summarized this knowledge that was present in the 70s and 80s. We didn't follow through. The VPD wrote a, a really impactful report, the first of three, and I think it was 2006, called Lost in Transition, where they were describing the fact that we said we were going to do this, we didn't do it, and now police are increasingly involved in responding to what looked like unmet mental illness related problems that they're not equipped for. 
that was 12 years ago. It's only gotten worse. Right. Um, so we've now had the opportunity. People might say, well, okay, well, that was the 70s and 80s. Population's different now. Actually, no, it's not, not meaningfully. We've had the opportunity, uh, uh, my team and teams in, in four other Canadian cities through a project known as At Home Chez Soi. In Vancouver, we, we um, identified hundreds of people living, living rough, serious mental illnesses and addictions, randomly assigned them to different conditions. The one that has shown by far the greatest promise is providing people with choices of housing that's dispersed in communities, so they have opportunities to not only select from, a, a, you know, a usually in, for, for research purposes, we'd, we'd aim to make it three choices, three choices at any given time. But they get to choose is the important thing. And then they get to become members of diverse buildings. Hmm. So um, if, you know, if anyone was, uh, I think, I think as a thought experiment, listeners can, can consider if there are two buildings, you're, if you're homeless, there are two buildings, one is filled with a diverse mix of people, young people, old people, kids, kids, et cetera. Um, the other building is entirely made up of people who have been recently homeless and who have mental illnesses and addictions. And which building would you want to move in? <laughs> right, right, sure. And if your choice is the diverse building, why do you think someone with a mental illness would choose differently? Yeah. Right? They don't. Right. They don't. They And research shows they overwhelmingly choose independent, air quotes, normal accommodations. Right. Our research shows that not only will people choose that, but the results for them and for communities are vastly better when there's a higher probability of them coming out on top by going into that environment. First year. So remember, I mentioned earlier that we had asked people for their consent to access administrative records through through that permission, through by by virtue of their permission, we could look at emergency department contacts, crime. People given choices of housing had 71% fewer criminal convictions and more than 50% fewer medical emergencies, crises, right. than people who were randomly assigned to usual care, which, by the way, is not nothing. It's what, you know, the premier and the mayor and yeah. others are saying, you know, vote for us. We got this, right? We've right. been hearing that for 15 years. Yeah. Like it goes back to Gregor Robertson. Yeah, sure. So it turns out, no, they don't. They don't, they don't got this. But something else that's important, when we do help people we tend to focus on grouping them together in single buildings, something Premier Eby has, has really uh, rammed through actually in a number of communities, are um, development uh, applications for buildings of up to 100 people um, in otherwise you know, established residential neighborhoods where there are no mental health supports. And I, I'm saying this having read the successful bid to be the operator, no mental health supports a consumption site on the bill in the building otherwise residential spot you're basically setting people up to live lives of addiction and maybe playstation that's it wow right um we were able as part of our experimental work to see what happens when you when, don't, don't do that but but group people all together so 107 people all living in a building with a, a fairly rich array of supports on site it, it was the same complement of, of, of resources that we used on an, on, an on an itinerant basis to help people in the scattered site conditions where they chose. So same, same mix of, of professionals, same budget, yeah. but not the same outcomes. The level of crime and the level of medical emergencies among people living all together was no different than the levels among people who remained homeless. 
And wow. the answer is culture. The answer is social mobility. The answer is people live when when they moved into scattered housing, they told us that they they were starting to feel like air quotes normal people. Right. Like um I'm well, I this is yeah. I, you know, I never I never thought I'd be in a close relationship. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be able to reconnect with my kid. Yeah. By the way, let me let me emphasize fully a quarter of the people who meet these criteria hardest to house, serious mental illness, et cetera, severe addictions, a quarter have kids under age 19 that they're clearly not living with. When given the opportunity to reconnect, that is invariably the most powerful motivator in their lives is, is the, the prospect that they can see themselves improving enough in their well-being, in their sense of self-confidence, self-control, dignity, that they are now feeling like hmm. they could be a positive because they don't want to reconnect just to be, you know, say hi. They want to reconnect yeah. and be a positive presence. And they start to see this come into view. It's wow. like it's miraculous, right? Yeah, that is pretty And um, We're not giving people those opportunities. Yeah. Wow. Well, I can see that. And I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I got a chance to watch Vancouver's Dying. You got interviewed by Aaron Gunn. He came onto our podcast recently. Um, and they had that one young fellow who was you know, talked about his story of going into one of these uh, central, you know, as like one of these hotels, I guess, that the city bought or a housing project where like literally you're just being, it's like, I, it seems to me like there's no difference than being homeless, except that you don't have to worry about getting rained on. You've got, you, you, it's almost worse in a way because they're, they're just, they're just there being picked off as victims by these drug pushers um, and they have nowhere to go. Yeah, uh, I mean, there. I mean, I, some, I, some colleagues did a study of of, of, of looking at the sort of untreated um, medical illnesses, and uh, um, they they did they had the budget to do imaging, like uh, you know, um, uh, medical imaging of people. They they found uh, um, untreated bullet wounds. Um, you know, with people, people living with shrapnel, <laughs> um, and, and the, the level, yeah, the level of neglect there, there, there are many people, uh, especially younger people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, it's a huge problem by the way that implicates our foster care system. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, cause a significant, a significant proportion it's, I mean, it's going to be 55,000 people or something like that. So it, like something less than 1%, like a tiny amount, less than 1% of the population who would ever encounter foster care, but it's, uh, close to 30% of people who are living homeless with serious mental illnesses and addictions. Um, so they're they're out there. Oh. They've got again. They've got no one in their corner. And um, once you hit that, you know that that magic cutoff of young adulthood, you're you're on your own. And you look at where people who have no money are living. You see urban urban places like the downtown east side. Young people do not want to be part of that scene. Mm -hmm. And it is it is as you said unsafe. But it's also unsafe for many older um, adults uh, down there due to their mental illnesses. Um, and uh, uh, women uh, who are a minority of those living on the streets and even in us, our SROs are uh, peculiarly vulnerable uh, to predation, sexual predation, mm -hmm. sex work predation, um, uh, and other forms of coercion that, that, um, you know, ought some time ago to have just sort of shocked us into action. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe I think we're getting closer by the way, so I don't mean to sound overly pessimistic, but it was, you know, 
2006, for people who've, who've been following this for a while, when the Senate of Canada, led by Mike Kirby, undertook a cross-Canada careful review, thousands of testimonies um, relating to mental illness and addiction, and they concluded two things that just stick with me indelibly that, that, that we've got to remember. One is we need to institute across the country community-based and recovery-oriented services. We need, and both are important, and they go together. It's, I, actually, I touched on it earlier. Being in community and, and having those, 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 those ties and, and connections is a big part of what makes recovery a prospect and a viable possibility. So those, those two things go together. But the second thing I, I, I want to emphasize is that when they came to, okay, so what are we going to ask for after all this work? They asked for a billion dollars. They didn't get a billion dollars. <laughs> but, but they asked for a billion. The important part of this is 500 million of it was purely for housing. Not particular types of housing, not housing for people with mental illnesses right. or you know anything like that. Simply housing, because we had allowed mental illness and addiction to become such a powerful determinant of homelessness in our country. That has not gotten better. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, that's a really well said and good point. Safe supply. Do you believe in it? As a marketing term. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're asking, you know, as a, as a shareholder in pharmaceuticals, yeah, I'm for it. I mean, it's a genius, right? Here we are, Andrew. Let's, let's imagine we're in some corner office. Uh, we're, you know, 10 years back, we're, we're, we're sort of, you know, agitating. We're being dragged into court, uh, sued over Oxy, right? All that, all that marketing we did, right? We knew, we knew it was dangerous, but we got caught. Now we're, geez, you know, we're, our heads are spinning. Where are we going to end up? But wait, there's good news. There are some guys out in BC who figured out a way to um, take not only opioids, but stimulants like cocaine and meth and other things that, that, that we're not really even able to sell very much. And they have found a way to, to get the government to pay for it. And no, it gets better. We're calling it safe supply because our play here is we are better positioned to be drug dealers than cartels. And it gets even better. Our customers are addicted to drugs, <laughs> right? So they're going to use lots and for as long as possible. So, you know, things are looking up and that's what's happened. The um, uh, leaders in B.C., and again, this is only in BC. Safe supply is a term that was uh, created here, has been promoted by uh, people who do research here. No evidence that it actually results in any improvement. And, it, and well, it's, then it's if, hard if there's to any evidence, it's not working. <laughs> like if, if there's any evidence, it's this. This is the evidence that it doesn't work. Uh, yeah. What is that number again? Two thousand two hundred and twenty two thousand two hundred and seventy two deaths last year. The year before, 2,306. There's a, this just came out. You, you got a piece there. This, yeah. this, I'm sure you've read this news in the, the Kelowna Now. That now a company called Adastra Holdings has uh, been given uh, authority by the Health Canada to possess, produce, and sell cocaine. Yeah. This is crazy. 
yeah, we we need we need a bit more detail on what exactly they're they're supposed to do with their up to 250 grams or I I forget what it what it what it is a quarter quarter of a kilo they can have. But Julian, um, isn't, isn't this kind of nuts? Well, it it's 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 following a, a an established pattern. I'm yeah. afraid. So let, let me let me uh, uh, give a, a shout out to a, a, a source of of information that people might be interested in. the The Stanford Lancet Commission in 2022 released their reports, a 50-page document, um, and analyzing the North American opioid crisis. So this is, they focus on Canada and the U.S. The, the first key message they emphasize is that the problem is, is linked to uh, profit-taking among people in the health and regulatory space, going back and forth. They say, um, but they then they list a lot of things that we ought to be doing more of, can be doing more of, based on evidence that would make a positive difference in people's lives. They add, by the way, there are two things that governments ought to be wary of. Um, the, the the word they use is skeptical. One of them is the um, the idea that um, it would be helpful to to provide uh, drugs dispensed from vending machines. Don't do that. The second thing they say is. Don't try to grow a pharmaceutical supply of drugs with the intention of trying to displace the illicit supply. Now, those two things, vending machines and a, and a pharmaceutical supply, are our number one and two play in BC. Right. And we're doing exactly the things they say not to do. How is that possible? Part of the explanation is um, profit-seeking. It gets back to their first key message. Mm -hmm. Our former provincial health officer, Perry Kendall, owns... A heroin company. He co-owns it with the director of population health at UBC, who is also the, the chief scientific director of the Michael Smith Foundation. So people who have the ability to influence research and who've been giving advice to government co-own a heroin company. Uh, the former incredible. deputy provincial health officer, a fellow named Mark Tyndall, owns a vending machine company. Yeah, he, he's he, he was one of my first guests on Coastal Front about three years ago. He's done great work in the area of yeah. infectious diseases. Mark, that's his specialty. Yeah. Mark, Mark, Mark has contributed, yeah, and, and as, as did others. Yeah. yeah, as did others to um, you know an incredibly important chapter in BC health history, which was our role in helping to um, uh, advance the fight against AIDS. Mm -hmm. But in this area, um, I mean, he's when gone, he was a guest on the show, he was talking about bringing out the first vending, machines? vending machine. He hadn't yeah. done it yet. Yeah. So, um, I mean... It seemed a bit odd to me, but... Uh, well, for people working in, in, in addiction who know, have known for some time that what makes the biggest difference um, are interpersonal relationships. Yeah. The quality and kind of interpersonal relationships, opportunities to have a relationship with an employer, with coworkers, yeah. with uh, fellow residents in a building, all, all these sorts of things. And the idea that for people who are markedly isolated socially, that our next step is going to be to remove an opportunity for human contact, even a pharmacist, right. and replace it with a machine is just crazy on the yeah. face of it. Anyway, the Stanford Lancet Commission agreed. But the, 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 the point I'm getting at with respect to the cocaine license is that we have already established a norm that profiting from the misery that we see around us is okay. In fact, it's to be rewarded. It's being framed somehow as innovation. We're not doing this in order to generate self, you know, it's not out of self-interest. We're doing this altruistically. It's hard to square that with evidence though. Yeah. 
Okay, Julian, well, and we've gone through the stats. Clearly, thing, whatever government policy has been, it's not working. Um, and we have set a new norm that's kind of quite candidly making me feel a bit worried about where we're going from here because this shouldn't be the norm. Um, that uh, it, And like to just to wrap up what you've said, we've really almost had government and profiteers go from uh, making um, the distribution of illicit drugs um, a illegal activity to almost a legal activity with an opportunity to make a profit off of it. This is the latest one is this idea that uh, somebody in BC has the, the ability to now produce, possess, produce and sell cocaine. It just like blows my mind. Um, we did talk earlier about what happened in Portugal, but Portugal is a different country, different situation. You're here in BC. I'm here in BC. Downtown Eastside is the epicenter of this misery for these people. Uh, and it's not just there, as you highlighted. Um, to, to kind of put a bow on this and put a positive note, because it's, it's quite honestly, it's a bit depressing talking about this and realizing how bad it is. And I appreciate having people like you in the trenches every day doing work on this stuff. If someone like David Eby, Ken Sim, or Trust, Justin Trudeau were listening to this podcast today, what would your advice be to them? How would you tell them, like, maybe you have talked to these people, but like, what would you say to them, like, guys, this is what we need to do here in BC. Here's some easy, low-hanging fruit right now that can change this around, similar to what you highlight is happening in Alberta right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'll, I'll start with a, 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 a simple metaphor. Um, if, if um, and it's, it's um, my metaphor is meant to be kind of uh, what, what can we achieve through harm reduction and what do we need other things for? Because overwhelmingly what we're doing right now is um, more closely related to um, harm reduction strategies. So if somebody is wanting to uh, just change how they feel inside their body, become a lot fitter, uh, just you know, make a big difference, um, they they might then find themselves you know in the grocery store and going down there the, the 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 chip aisle and normally they'd stop for some Doritos and maybe some cokes over there but they decide no no I'm not going to do that right because that's harm reduction right you're not okay. gonna you're not making those you're gonna let that go because that good analogy that we can relate to yeah, yeah we can all relate to this but there's no amount of not buying Doritos that's going to transform your body. Right. You need a vision of what you're trying to achieve and you need to work, right? right? That's what we're missing in this context. We know things we're against. We're against people dying on the sidewalk, so everybody has Narcan. We're against people freezing to death outside, so we have emergency cold weather shelters. Okay, we all know what we're against. Mm -hmm. What are we for? Yes. What is the long-term vision for these people? Yeah. This is what we need. Mm -hmm. So, this, and this is what... Uh, the Out of the Shadows at Last report from all those years ago, this is what it meant when it used the term recovery-oriented, community-based recovery-oriented. There has to be a vision of being in a better place, of greater wellness. So we, we need in our communities to be having in BC uh, conversations about what vision do we have for people that are currently suffering and at risk of death. And uh, one place we can start because of where we are in BC and our particular um, uh, social um, obligations, we could start um, by thinking about indigenous communities. 
and the outstanding um, uh, burden of reconciling. Indigenous communities are are asking for a number of things and have for many years, um, but they include the the means of of re-strengthening their communities. I think we need to see that opportunity as completely related to the fact that those who are at risk of dying are disproportionately indigenous. And by putting that on the table as part of our long-term strategy to address addiction, we actually are, are, are backing a winner. It's a multiple word score because it, it's going to help us in other respects too. But um, we also need to apply that thinking to other communities. Now, I can be more concrete than, than that. We've, uh, based on research through randomized trials, um, we've shown that, that a lot of ways of helping people that are meaningful and long-term are viable in Canada and in BC in particular. So um, unlike our current approach where we funnel all of the housing dollars through BC Housing, BC Housing develops their congregate buildings or contracts with people to do it, we need to be thinking about this unpaid debt to people with mental illness following the institutionalization um, and turn to landlords in the private sector. We need to be securing a large portfolio of long-term housing that is scattered and dispersed. We need to be similarly in those communities working with employers and talking to them about decades-long, well-established models of supported employment. The province partnering with employers around not explaining these models, um, but also providing the resources to make that work. Um, it has much more to do with engaging the private sector um, as, an, as, an, as an important ally. And by the way, you know, for most of us, the inclusion of more and more public services in our lives as something we need is not the way we think about wellness, no. right? We want less. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about, is, is calling more on the organic and um, uh, health-giving uh, aspects of our communities. So I'm talking, I'm talking employers and landlords right now, um, and develop the capacity to provide supports for people um, that are d- dispersed around communities in in in, way, in areas where we know there are high concentrations of folks living in need. A, a final thing I'll mention is um, related to business intelligence. We we know a lot of the the, the a lot of the stats that I've referred to um, are knowable and in the public domain because for the last 20 years, well, un- until recently, we BC had been making good use of multi-ministry information about uh, people spiraling between multiple sectors, uh, hospitals, jails, the streets. And among other things, we've been able to identify where are the concentrations by at, at, the, at the neighborhood level of people around BC who are experiencing these syndromes. And we need to be using that kind of information not only to plan where we're making a difference, where we're investing. It can't all be in the downtown east side. That's, yeah. that's going to come years too late for many people. Um, so using it to not only plan where we put uh, investments, but also using the same information to track how those investments are paying off. Are we are we getting the same yeah, impact and yeah. benefit that we've been shown is achievable in randomized trials? We know it's achievable. 
So are we replicating it? And if yeah. we're not, let's just take a clear-eyed view. And it's you know, it's not about beating anybody up. It's about how can we get better? Yeah. Some will be better. Some will be not so good. How can we learn from the good ones? Make the make the other ones better. So this is a, a Seems vision. Such common sense. You'd you'd think. I thought I was on safe footing presenting this to EB's government. Um, and uh, um, we were, you know, we had we were poised at the time. I had been leading this work, uh, this interministry work, by 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 that time for for a while. We had already renewed with uh, the the contributing ministries uh, for another round of work that was based on a um, a COVID related project that, that we had funded, and um, we were in the process of updating the data. I made this presentation, and one week afterward. We got a letter at SFU saying, um, thanks for the last 20 years. Please arrange to destroy the data by the end of the month, which was three weeks notice. Um, destroy and, uh, the data? Destroy the whole thing. Destroy everything. Like like proverbial shred shred what yeah. you got yeah just oh yeah destroy and part of the letter is this is this is by the way the letter's online uh, you can go to my <laughs> my website uh, summers psych um, but it's other other people have posted it too uh, and they said and also make sure you sanitize the drives. Um, so this was. You gotta be kidding me. Uh, this, so this is yeah, it's in the public domain. Um, and as I said, we were already in the process of renewing. The Ministry of Health had already uh, renewed the information sharing agreement for another year in order to accommodate this work that we had agreed upon. Um, and the the best explanation I have is um, it's linked to my presentation. And um, and part of the explanation I didn't find this part out until many months later. At the time I made my presentation, the government had already committed to implementing single buildings with consumption sites as part of its solution. I had shown them from randomized trial evidence that that's not going to result in wins. So, so you, I didn't yeah. know I didn't know I was shooting myself in the foot. Right. But um, they'd already made their decision. The they already made their decision. had already made their call. Yeah. And Wow. You mentioned Sumner's, uh, your website, Sumner Psych. Yep. Um, you also have Sumner's Research Group. Can you talk a little bit about that and um, to, to, into kind of tying, wrapping this up? Like if people really like this conversation like I have, it's been fantastic. How can they continue to follow your work? So thanks. I really appreciate that, Andrew. Um, well, at this point, it's uh, so we are doing research. Our, our group is, is very involved in, in a number of projects. I I think where most people can make a difference is that they'll start simple on the on the website. Um, uh, you can go to a um, a, a a tab. It's uh, um, uh, get in touch, um, uh, lend your voice, and um, hopefully, uh, many people have told us that they find it's pretty easy to navigate. But it's essentially a, a, an easy way to send a letter to elected officials. You can select them from a drop down. And it's uh, it's not asking you know people to 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 sign up for anything too specific um, or anything like that. It's it's telling people it's 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 giving people an opportunity to send a letter that says we don't think what the the current approach is working. We want there to be more of a conversation about additional options because that that's I think what's needed. It would be I think it would be premature of someone like me. Um, to come in here and say uh, this is exactly these are exactly the things that that are, that are needed. Um, there's a point at which we all need, as 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 the Portuguese did, we all need to come together. We all need to come together um, and 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 have the conversation about where do we want to go? What's the vision 
for the next generation right. or, or however however expansively we can think if you want to think about grandkids and great grandkids yeah. fill your boots going and back think to your about the future philosophy of like we know what we don't want but what we haven't had as a yeah as a genuine conversation about where we want to get to yeah yeah. So our leaders uh, have backed away from that. There's uh, there's 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 no sense whatsoever. We need some um, vision. We need vision. And and it's not. And, and it, at this point, it's not going to come from our leaders, um, but perhaps it shouldn't. Perhaps it's it's better. It's more likely to be effective if uh, we all recognize as many of us as possible that that we need to have conversations with each other and um, conversations at the community level that then get networked. And um, if we do that, it's it's really nothing short of talking about what we want, how we want to redefine our social contract. Yeah, that's well said. I like it. Julian Summers, distinguished professor at SF, SFU and director of the Center for Applied Research in Mental Health and Addiction. Thank you for being on Coastal Front today. It's been a great conversation. And uh, I wish you uh, much success in going around and talking to the community and spreading your gospel because this is really well said. Um, it's made me rethink some of my own prejudices or thoughts that I had before this conversation. So thanks for being on today. It's always great talking to you, man. I'll yeah. look forward to next time. Okay. Thanks, Julian.